Podcast world, what's going on? Chad Belling back at you, the Fat Life Podcast. We're going to have part two of my new good buddy, Russell Higby, Oklahoma, the law dog hunting lodge. You heard part one with him. We got into his passion of waterfowling, a little bit of his early story, his childhood, how he came across this unbelievable homestead, farmstead, where this lodge sits, where we're staying right now. Just a cool place. Today's episode of the foul life podcast is brought to you by our friends this thing is called the flask cap y'all need to check it out talk about a cool ass tumbler cup but it's the lid that's so innovative you can put your mixer and your ice in your tumbler cup say you're going to a boat say you're out on the lake say you're at the beach where they don't allow glass you can put six to nine shots depending on what size you get of your favorite spirit in the lid and then with one push of a button it'll dispense a shot into your mixer and ice down on the tumbler shake it around a little bit you got yourself a cocktail so it prevents you from bringing glass bottles of vodka jack daniels gin whatever your choice is out on the boat taking a chance of breaking them cutting your foot your hand whatever it is check out flask cap f-l-a-s-k-a-p drew and the entire crew are just innovative they're awesome people and we truly are honored to be part of the flask cap family today's episode of the foul life podcast is also brought to you by our friends at the one and only avery greenhead gear we've been shooting lesser canada geese in oklahoma over the the new bolts over the lessers over the commercial grade xd honkers we are having a blast over these decoys and the thing that sets them apart is that they truly are first and finishing with their texture their detail they're anatomically correct they are so perfect now with all of the tail loops built into them to be able to carry so many at a time saving you a bunch of that valuable time whether it's in the morning setting up or in the afternoon tearing down greenhead gear continues to innovate the decoy market so check them out for all of your duck and goose decoy needs also ground blinds dog blinds (laughs) panel blinds you name it avery greenhead gear and the banded family of brands are at the top of their game right now and we are humbled and honored to have them as part of our arsenal and partnership so let's get to part two with mr russell what's up my man how are you today good how are you i'm doing just great it's cold here yes it is why well you know we (laughs) we were at 80 degrees day before yesterday so you know if you don't like the weather in oklahoma stay a day and it'll change do you expect it to get this cold in oklahoma yes uh i do this is january and february are cold months and we have but luckily it doesn't stay very long just a day or so. Um, <clears throat> but they're saying it's around negative five with the wind chill. Right. Air temperature is going to get down to about 10 degrees tonight. Um, do you consistently see it get that low to where it dips in the negatives, you know, negative five with the wind chill? Does that happen? I don't think I've ever been in Oklahoma when it's been this cold. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, if you get an Arctic blast, it'll last, like I say, two or three days. You definitely want to drip your sinks. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to make the hunting good, though, I think. Yeah, I think it will. Move the birds. I'm sure will. New ducks coming down from Nebraska, yeah. Kansas. I think that that whole cold front that's going across the central part of the country right now is right. going to bring a lot of new birds. It's been real slow. Hope this, you know, perks up. So honestly, what do you think <clears throat> of that taco today? We made Canada Goose tacos. We got our meat meat meet your maker meat grinder out today, mm-hmm. and 
just went to town with some pork fat and Canada goose breast meat, and we're using it for a spaghetti tonight. We're getting ready to go start our spaghetti right now, but just to give you a little taste today, I threw down on a couple tacos for you. What'd you think of them? Well, when when uh, one of the guys came over and said, uh, come over and get a goose taco, I kind of drug my feet because I wasn't too excited about eating a goose taco, uh, and I thought, well, I better get on over there, so I went over and sat down, and you served one up, and the first bite, I, I couldn't believe it. It was just really that good. And uh, so, you know, I tried to contain myself, but I had to have two. <laughs> so they were really good. You made a comment that you could sell them things. Yeah, yeah, I swear you could. <laughs> They're that good. It's such a good way to get rid of a ton of geese, too, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, you got a lot of people staying at your lodge all the time. And now with the ability to get that grinder out and put in some pork fat and just – I mean, literally, those tacos took me minutes to make. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a cakewalk. I mean, as long as you take care of that meat from yeah. the field, people mm-hmm. don't, they take that part for granted. They'll let them sit around. Yeah. They'll let them get in the sun too much. You got to take care of that meat. I'm not saying sure. that you can't hang ducks and geese for a couple of days yeah. and clean them, but I like to get that meat off the bone and taken care of right away. Yeah, if you fillet it off and, 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 and prepare it and, and get it ready, um, you know, you'll be a lot better off. Don't leave it sitting around a day or two you know you'll have a problem i don't like that i I like getting it done right away but i wanted to get in a little bit of we touched on your career Mm -hmm. you were military Mm -hmm. vietnam vet and i had uh, uh, after i got out of college uh, i went into the uh, army uh, for two years and then uh, when i got out of that i went into a reserve group and i stayed in the reserves about 13 and a half years until i went went to work for the uh, state bureau of narcotics and uh, then my time just wasn't my own anymore. I was an officer. And, uh, you know, you had certain responsibilities with uh, military duties, and it was just a little t- bit too difficult. So I resigned my commission and got out and have kind of regretted that, really, you know, over the years because I really did enjoy it. I was in a real good unit. I was in a 12th Special Forces group there in Oklahoma City, and it was, a, a you know, a hot unit. It was fun. Made a lot of parachute jumps and a lot of uh, uh, just about any school you wanted to go to and, and uh you know, you you're capable of going anywhere or doing anything because it was such a the unit was like it was, you know, a special forces unit. So um, anyway, uh, stayed in the service like that for all those years, and um, um, then I went to work for the State Bureau of Narcotics uh, in, the, in the early '80s, about '82. Prior to that, I'd spent five years with the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office, where I really kind of you know uh, earned my stripes there, learned police work. I had a degree in uh, business education and had taught school and coached for five years prior to that. And uh, just all of a sudden, just one day thought, I don't, I don't want to do this teaching. I don't want to coach anymore. All my family were teachers and coaches. And I just thought, well, I, I, I want to do something else. So uh, I decided to get into police work. And I applied for federal jobs and state jobs and county jobs. And finally, the county uh, called and said uh, they got a position open. So I went down there. And I, I uh, worked my way through from the criminal divi- or from the civil division over the criminal division, and from the criminal division down to the major crimes division. And, and I was in heaven. I thought that was about the best job I'd ever had. They worked all the heinous crimes: rape, robbery, murder. Um, uh, you know, all those good crimes that I, I enjoyed really doing. And one day, my uh, lieutenant came to me and said, "We're going to send you out to the, uh, the sheriff wants to send you out to the uh, Oklahoma." Bureau of Narcotics to go to their drug school. And I said, oh, don't send me out there. I said, I can't even take an aspirin. I said, I'm, I'm not your man. And they said, no, he's going to send you. So I said, well, all right. So I went out there 
and they had just split off. We only had one agency in Oklahoma at the time, the State Bureau of Investigation, and the, and the drug problem was so <clears throat> growing so much in Oklahoma that they split that agency off and made a State Bureau of Narcotics, and they were just beginning that uh, agency, and so they were looking for people to go to work. And uh, I went to the school and, and uh, finished up. It was about a three-week school, and, and uh, uh, what it was was a school that brought sheriffs and deputies and, and chiefs and, and uh, police department's uh, employees in and taught them how to make a, a drug case that was worthy of prosecuting in uh, courts. And uh, we had a good reputation for that, the Bureau did, and so that's what the school was all about. So I went to that school and came back to the sheriff's office, and about two days later, the director of the bureau and the chief agent knocked on the door and signaled for me to come out. And so I went out, and they said, do you have a degree? And I said, yeah, I've got I've, I've got a bachelor's degree, and I've got a uh, master's degree in criminal justice. And they said, uh, well, golly, that's great. said, you did real good in our school. I said, do you want to go to work for us? And I said, yep, I sure do. So that was my introduction and my decision. It was made just like that. And... Um, <clears throat> So within a month or so, I was employed uh, with the State Bureau of Narcotics. And I remember going to the sheriff and telling him, I said, I'm going to go out to going to work for the State Bureau of Narcotics. He said, well, I didn't send you out there so that you could go to work for them. You know, I need help down here. I said, well, I'm going to go out there. So I did and stayed. Uh, I just stayed 30 years to see if I was going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> um Give me an idea of the special forces part of the military career before we get into this narcotics, because I love the idea that, you know, 30 years to see if you liked it. Obviously, (laughs) you became very good at it. But what was the special forces? You're doing parachute jumps, you're doing halo stuff, but you're a Vietnam vet. You were what was the special forces? What were the responsibilities of this unit? Um, Well, the the unit that I was in was a um, uh, a. uh, headquarters unit and a replacement unit and um uh they they would take individuals and and put and and put them in active duty uh army units uh you know for filler and um so we had a lot of people coming and going you know out of our unit doing just that um the thing that i really liked about it was that since it was a priority unit you could go just about to any school that was that the army had to offer uh, you you could uh, you could attend the the uh, jump school, which was mandatory if you was going to be in the special forces. You had to go through the jump school, and then you could hone your your talents there and and become a jump master, where you you know pushed people out the door, you know. And uh, but you could go to ranger school, you could go to pathfinder school, you could go to jungle school. All these schools were available for you to go to, so that you could just continue to hone your skills. And then the the um, uh, basic course for special force was at fort bragg uh where you actually earned your patch for your parade and uh after you got all that then then you were qualified you were called qualified special forces uh officer so um so army special forces is green berets yes. and delta force no delta force is separate but delta force is part of the army right oh yeah uh-huh, yeah 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 but uh, Special Forces is just a, a, a brand of its own, a bunch of its own. Uh, Kennedy, President Kennedy, granted the the uh, right for the Special Forces in about, I don't know, 1962 or 64, somewhere around there, uh, to wear a green beret, to be a distinctive uh, part of the uniform. And so it lives on today. And, of course, the, uh, there's, there's a, a song, Barry Sadler sings a song, uh, 
Green Beret song. Uh, John Wayne has made a movie, Green Beret. So the, the beret is the is the, uh, the the token, is the high, is the, you know if you get the beret, you win the beret. That's that's quite an honor, you know, to be able to have so that. So you're a Green Beret. I was, yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. But Delta Force is just totally separate. Yes. Than the berets. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. You did not go would, to Delta Force. No, no, I wasn't Delta Force. And it, it'd be like SEALs, SEAL Team 6 or 3 or 5 or whatever they've got, you know. Yeah. It's a different, you know, that that bunch is in the uh, Navy, you know, they're, they're, they're Navy SEALs. And uh, so the Army, is, uh, each branch of service has a little bit different. You know, uh, the Air Force has a pararescue, I think, yeah. you know, a little different. So you're, you're just trained a little bit different. Uh, the Special Forces were, were uh, uh, forces that, that, that uh, were... were uh, a training group, if you will, in Vietnam, they uh, they, they 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 trained up indigenous people, you know, to fight the battles themselves and to support them and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, that was that was their objective. Missions. You were involved in a lot of missions as a, as special forces. Are you? Do you look back on the military career and that part of your life? Do you? miss it when you get out does it does it scare you that you went through how do you what's the mentality though that you that looking back on it do you were you just like a balls of the wall kind of no fear son of a bitch that didn't care or do you wish that you would have did, did things a little bit different or do you what what did that military dear military career do as far as setting the the the, re, the path for the rest of your life well i think that uh I think those people are a little bit daredevilish. You know, I look back on my life and think, you know, how how, how I started out. I remember one time uh, out at the farm, uh, my grandfather had a, a hay barn, and my sister and I were in the top of that hay barn, and she dared me to jump out holding an uh, international umbrella that was on my back of my grandfather's tractor for shade. And so I did, and the first few seconds, it was really a neat sensation floating to the ground, you know, and then the umbrella inverted and I piled right right in the ground and, and uh, hurt my wrist. And, but, you know, I, I just think that, uh, I don't know whether it's a dare or what it is that's in your blood, but, uh, it's just one toe over the line. It seems like, and those people are, I, I think it was a natural uh, progression for me to be in the service and, and want to be in, in a special forces unit or an airborne unit. Uh, and then when I got out, you know, police work seemed to, to, to uh, call my name, you know. But do you be having the daredevil kind of life when you when you're actually there now, and you do you have to go up in an airplane, and you're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, you know. But you're doing this to protect the freedoms of the American people and the country. But you still have to have this mentality of like, well, I could still be doing something else with my life. What is the mentality that makes a special forces? Because when you talk to them, I've, I've got to hunt with a lot of them, and I'm honored to be able to do so, from Navy SEALs to, to Delta Force, a lot of different individuals. And they always say that the, the thing they hated the most was not being able to go back again when it ended for them. Like, that's a different kind of mentality, in my opinion, of it's you got to have a little bit of craziness to you. Like, there's no, you're putting yourself in harm's way at all times. So do you ever look back, Russ, and be like, holy shit, what the hell was I thinking? No, not really. I mean, it was just a stride that I took, and I really, really enjoyed it. But when I when I passed that up and got into police work, that even became more of a challenge to me, uh, especially working undercover. 
Great transition. I like that. Undercover is something, in my opinion, that can be like anxiety could creep in in a heartbeat. Like, you know, like, are they going to catch me kind of deal? Are they going to figure me out kind of? Exactly. And then the other part of undercover is that it's never over, really, because if you... If you go into some place now, you might see somebody that, oh, my God, I locked that dude up at some time. Or is he going to recognize me? Does he know who I was? Did the Mm -hmm. word get out? How how does that all take place in this kind of career? How does it all stay under wraps for the rest of your life? Does it ever get out? Have you ever had any encounters of like somebody that you may have put put away in the or you know you're undercover and you made a big bust on them has it ever come back to to bite you in the ass at all well i mean i've, I've had several encounters like that um uh, uh one of them when i was actually working undercover um uh, i had worked like i say five years at the county sheriff's office before i went over to the state bureau and so uh, I put a lot of people in jail at the county and also taken a ton of them to court uh, for their trials and so on. You escort them down and back up. You sit there with them all day. And um, I was working undercover on a particular methamphetamine case uh, in in, in uh, Moore, Oklahoma. And I went into a, a business where this guy was that, that, that was the target. And I purchased uh, meth from him, methamphetamine from him. And... Um, did it on several occasions, and he would come with uh, more and more amounts each and every time. Finally reached a point to where he couldn't produce any more, couldn't bring any more. And so uh, I got an arrest warrant and went out. And when I went to him, I said, <clears throat> when he walked in the door, he said, I know who you are now. And I said, who's that? And he said, well, you put me in jail, and you took me to court one time when I was in the sheriff's office. He said, you're a police officer. And I said, yes, that's right, and you're under arrest. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm, you're, not you're not an officer now. Because during the exchange of conversation, I had told him that <clears throat> he said, I think I know you from somewhere down at the courthouse or something. And I said, well, if you, if you won't tell anybody, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I was. I was a deputy sheriff, but I got caught for, for uh, stealing money out of the property room. And I said, I got fired, and I'm, I'm, on, I'm on probation. And, and he bought that story. Except when I came back with a warrant and I showed him my badge, but he had, he didn't hardly believe that I was even then a police officer. So that was one of them, you know, that was kind of an interesting. So he had busted you from the get go. Yeah, yeah, he knew who I was, but continued to continued to sell me drugs. So you know? did you come up with that story on your own just right I just away? I thought of it just in the instant when it happened. You know, I thought hey, oh, you're wearing a wire. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. when you get back to the van or the office, do yeah. your other fellow officers or your commander go, "What the hell? How'd you come up with that all of a yeah, sudden?" Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you have to be pretty, you know, pretty creative sometimes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I remember one other time I was buying heroin uh, from an individual downtown in Oklahoma City, and I'd made two or three buys from him. And my cover story was that uh, my wife was uh, sick with, uh, was on heroin, and, and she needed a fix each and every morning. And so I went down there, and I'd go down there in the mornings and buy, you know, four or $500 worth of heroin from this particular person. And uh, on uh, this one day, I came back to the office, and my boss called me and said, go back down there and buy another uh, batch of heroin, and we're going to arrest that guy. And I said, I can't go back down there. I said, I go every morning. He's used to seeing me in the morning, and it's not going to be a cool deal at all. And he said, yeah, you go on back down there. I said, that's just part of the deal. I went, okay. So I went down, and sure enough, when I got down there, he said, "Uh, what what are you doing back down here? And I told him, you know, I had to score some more dope for my wife. And he said, uh, well, sit down. He was sitting at a card table, and there was two or three people sitting around the uh, room with him. And uh, there was a uh, stainless steel 357 
on this table right over by his right hand. And I sat over to his left, and um, he said, how much do you need now? And I said, oh, a couple more hits. And he said, uh, okay. He said, I need to ask you a question real quick. He said, uh, uh, are you the man? And I said, what? And he said, are you the man? And I said, no, I'm not the man. He said, well, and he reached over and picked that 357 up and stuck it right in my cheek and said, well, if you are the man, you're dead. I'll blow your head off right now. And um, I said, no, I, I tried my best. You know, I'm, I am not the man. And we carried an undercover billfold and credentials and stuff on our person. And he told this other guy, I said, reach in his pocket and get his billfold. So he did. And I had an undercover driver's license and all the proper credentials for undercover stuff you know and uh, he looked at it and said oh, okay and uh, I don't know whether he ever really believed me or not but he lowered the gun and it was in the summer and I got up and started the door <laughs> and I was so shook up you're sweating like a I was son. sweating so bad that the the uh, tape that I'd used to uh, that great tape to put that mic on that body mic turned loose and it turned loose just as I exited the door and it kind of dropped out of my shirt and stuff oh, shit. I, I kind of tucked it back in and got the heck out of there and uh, i mean i was obviously shook bad and i got in my car and drove down the road a little ways and pulled over and some of the surveillance agents said god we heard all of everything that went on i said yeah yeah i know and my boss came up and said well you know that's just part of the deal you know you're gonna have things like that happen i said oh well <laughs> no thanks yeah so what what stops a guy with a stainless steel 357 from tearing your shirt open and looking if he thinks you might have something going on why don't they go that far i don't know why i did i you know we we've we have had problems like that or we had problems like that but it was just one of those deals where you know um i don't know whether you could uh, shine it on and say it's a heart monitor i don't know what you would do you know you'd have to really come with something pretty good because they would have you you know at that point <clears throat> yeah so what yeah uh, you you were doing heroin buys from this guy. Mm -hmm. What what made him think that? Did I mean? I'm trying to figure out like all of a sudden is because you had him pegged of like if I go down there and it's not in the morning he's going to think is that why he acted like that because you just showed up out of the blue? I'd already been there that morning and scored dope and that that had been my pattern and and why was I coming back? But why would your commander put you in that in harm's way like that though? Well, you'll have to ask him that. I don't know. He's that's crazy shit. Like that's you <laughs> yeah. knew what you were doing. You kind of yeah. had the instincts of yeah. this guy. Yeah, and generally the, the the commanders and the people above you and so I will say you know if you don't feel good about doing the deal, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, but they said do it. So I it went almost on, cost it. you your life. Could have. So what do you do? You are you the one that goes back and busts this guy at the bus time? Well, that's an, that's even a part two of that story. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we got the warrant, and we were going to go back down, and uh, oh, something happened. I don't know. And so it kind of got put on the back burner for a while, and and um, about I don't know two or three weeks later, from over around Tulsa, Claremore, Oklahoma called one day and said are you looking for this person and i said sure am they said well he's over here uh in the hospital I said come to the police department we'll take you over there and i said okay so my partner and i jumped in the car and drove over to tell or to claremore and got there and <clears throat> they said officer will drive you down there you can follow him so we did and we got down to the hospital and when we got there they said yeah come on he's right in this room in here and uh, when we walked in um he was laying there on a gurney with a sheet over him dead yeah he was dead and he had uh, wire on his wrist and ankles 
<clears throat> and they'd found him floating in the Vertigree River. You know, they'd put uh, uh, building blocks on his legs and arms and submerged him. And, of course, he'd been eating a little bit and so on. It was just a measure. But he, he you know, he, we didn't need to arrest him. He was gone. <laughs> he, so he must have pissed off the wrong guy above him. Yeah, yeah. He must have done something. Because it doesn't, it like, go in levels with these drug dealers? Yeah. Aren't there, like... You got to you get to know the dealer, and then you keep you keep don't really pressing. bust him, yep. or you might wait a minute to bust <clears throat> yep. him to become an accomplice. Or right. so when you, as an undercover agent, give me some ideas of some of your your uh, you know what do you call them? Is it is it is it your costume, or what is it? What do you refer to it as 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 what you dress up like? Well, it just depends on you know. Not only do you go against people like that that are you know. Uh, kind of street people but you know we did a lot of deals you know uh we had we had uh, politicians that we went against bank uh presidents uh that you knew were in the drug game that what that were in the drug game yeah they'd sell to you uh i had teachers um i bought i bought drugs from a from a uh, chemistry teacher at a a university like breaking bad the show yeah (laughs) yeah he was a teacher um so your disguise would just would would blend in with whatever whatever you're doing yeah Uh so if you're going against a teacher you got a pocket protector in and look kind of like a little nerd kind of like guy or what do you dress (laughs) like no you just you know you just dress contemporary just like you know uh a student or, or whatever you know and and uh Nothing outlandish, you know, if you're going to a, you know, if you're going to go down uh, to a bank, to a president's office, you know, you might have a sport coat on or something like that. If not, and you're going to do work, work drugs out of a club or on the street, then you dress uh, appropriate like that. So what's the, what was, <clears throat> with your mentality of, of the daredevil, you know, you're jumping out of airplanes and your special forces and you've been there, done that. You don't have a whole lot of fear, but you also are a family man. Yes. You have a kid, you have a yeah. wife, you're, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you, you have a, a big, you know, immediate family. Mm-hmm. What was the best part of it? Was there any, <clears throat> was it the, was it the, the encounters under disguise? Was it going to make the bust and surprise them being like, Hey man, gotcha. Did you almost, did it ever come down to where when you did bust them rush, you almost liked the person because of all the dealings you had with them at a time to where you almost developed like a kinship or a, a friendship with them because they might've been kind of neat people. Right. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you're like, Holy shit. It felt like I was busting a friend in yeah, a way. Like your brother or sister or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's, you know, you do build a relationship with them. In fact, uh, uh, I talked a little while ago about that, but uh, I've had two or three times uh, people say, "Oh, you're just kidding. You're not, you know, you're not. You're not the estate." After agent. you made the bus, yeah. they're just like, "No." Yeah. You you pull your badge out and show them and say, "Where'd you get that?" Well, I mean, I was issued that. I'm a state officer. No, you're not either. You're you're uh, R. A. Bryant. You know, using your undercover name to you, you know, or something like that, and they say. Quit kidding, really. Come on, let's go. Whatever. You know, and he said, No, you're under arrest. You see those guys over in that booth right there? Yeah, they're not they're agents also. And they're here to back me up in case you get squirrely. So let's go. And he'd you know, they'll say, Well, I, I can't believe this. But they do. You know. So you just escort them out in cuffs or yeah. do you walk them out? No, to- I just, you just walk them out, you know. Uh, you hope they don't get nuts. You know, we have had them. I've had problems with them before, but generally you can kind of you can kind of talk to him a little bit and get him out. And um, so, is that 357 in your cheek? Is that the closest you came to to <clears throat> getting squirrely like that? Yeah, I think uh, that was probably uh, the most. I mean, there were there were several uh, shootings. I was involved in several shootings. Um, 
over my career. So, uh, like live gunfights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did yeah. it? Did it escalate because they caught on to you? Yes. Well, um, it always comes down to you know. Some go to jail, and some you have to take to jail. And those that you take to jail, that's where the problem begins. You know, some just not going to go. And uh, uh, they pull out a gun and try to get away from you, mm-hmm. and try to kill you. Yeah. Well, we had a we did a survey uh, with our agents, and and uh, the guy that was doing the survey made a report at one of the agency meetings one time and said that about 87% to 90% of the people that we're dealing with are carrying guns, have them on them during the, the uh, transaction. And, of course, we had ours. They're hard, to, they're hard to hide, you know, when you work like that. Uh, you never surrender your credentials or your, or your uh, weapon, ever. And, um, but it's hard to... To uh, when it comes right down to it, you know, to produce your weapon in a timely manner. Sometimes you have to kind of distract them. Uh, I I've developed several different things. Uh, um, I would shortchange them maybe on on uh, money, and I'd say, well, here you count it and get their head down where you can get your hands free for a second, you know, or or um, in a car, you know, say, uh oh, who's that? And they'd look that way for just an instant. You know where you could get your weapon out and go to work. So it was just a it was just a series of of uh, figuring out what's going to work, almost like hunting. You know, well we need to move the decoys. You know, well, you the are wind, hunting in a way. The, yeah, the, yeah, they're they're uh, you know the winds changed, so we need to do this, or let's say we don't have enough brush on the front of our blind, or something like that. I had a guy that wrote an article. He's now since gone, but died awful early, but but was a, a wildlife writer for the Oklahoma paper. And uh, he wrote an article on me one time, and he said, uh, after, I'd, after I'd retired, he said, and, and started this business, he said, yeah, Russ has uh, moved from busting dopers to busting ducks. And he had that in the paper, and he got a lot of comments. I thought it was a pretty clever little That's comment. Cool. Room, uh, yeah. Do you recall any mistakes that you made that you look back at and be like, holy shit, I can't. Did you like say your wrong name or like mix names up to where they tried to catch on to that or they they looked at you different? I mean, do you remember any mistakes you made? Oh, there's plenty of them, you know. I mean, uh, it's just like anything else. You make make mistakes every day and you try to limit those because uh, if you make too many of them in this business, you know, it costs you your life. So you're very, very careful. You do a lot of preparation. You think through the whole thing. Uh, you try to prepare a, a, a operational order, you know, to to, to set the mission and, and the, uh, what it is that you're going to need. And then the last part of that operational order is is uh, what happens if it goes south? What are you going to do? You know, so you have a lot of a lot of thought and a lot of preparation with regards to what if you know everything falls apart. What do you do? You know, and uh, you 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 rehearse that over and over and over. And uh, that eliminates a lot of the mistakes. You know, if you get in a hurry on a drug deal, you're probably going to get in trouble. Did you ever get in a hurry? Oh, um, probably. Uh, but, I, you know, was able to get out from underneath whatever it was. Um, my military training had, had taught me that, you know, prior planning prevents poor performance. And so I, I really paid attention to what was going on. I would worry if, if I was undercover to somebody and they'd say, well, meet me at such and such club. You know, that always worried me because I had taught school, high school, and coached in Oklahoma City. So you might and see a student. might see somebody that I knew, yeah. 
And I did one time at a club. And uh, they said, hey, Russ, how are you doing? You when you know, say club, is this a regular bar? Is this like a dance club? Yeah, or yeah, yeah, bar. Uh-huh. Yeah, bar. Yeah. I was buying cocaine from this person and uh, had met him there two or three times. And they kept wanting to go back there. And I said, you know. And uh, so this one time I went back and there were two or three people over there that knew me. And uh, I just, uh, we would go to the restroom to do the deal. We would do it right at the table. So got up and started by and walked by these people. And I saw them and went, oh, no. And they said, hey, Russ, what's going on? And I just walked on by. And I said, do they know you? No, man, I don't know, you know, I don't know who that is, you know. And, and of course, uh, the drug deal was more important than finding out who that was. But it could have been a problem. Hell, yeah. You know, it could have been a problem. So there's different things like that that you uh, run into and 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 uh, uh, and uh, handle right on the spot. Um, one other, I, I, I remember one time <clears throat> I was working in northeastern part up around uh, Enid, and I was undercover to a guy buying um, uh, five pounds of marijuana, and uh, he said, "Well, meet me at the um, uh, Sonic Drive-in," and I said, "All right." So I met him at the Sonic Drive-in when I was driving an undercover truck. And had it rigged up with the recording stuff so that if he got in, we could, you know, uh, it'd help on the case. And I pulled up, and uh, uh, he was across, in the speakers was across, and I signaled for him to come over. You know, you know, the, kind of the rule was you didn't want to get out of your car and get in his, and you didn't, you never did, you, you didn't want to get in somebody's car and then go somewhere with them. You just don't do that because that's problems. And so I said, come on over here. No, you come over here. I said, no, I'll just come here. I've got... I've got the money, you know, I got the money. So he said, all right. So he walked over there and got in. And uh, lo and behold, if my wife and daughter didn't pull up at the Sonic right across from me while the deal was going down. No freaking And I made eye contact with her and she went like, you know, almost spoke to me. And, uh, oh, my heart just. What were you disguised as? Skin. I just I had a beard and just you know jeans and a jean did jacket. You, did you leave the house like this with your wife seeing you, or did you go to the the precinct and get done up over there? I, I went to the office, yeah, out of the bureau, and got. It was in the afternoon or early evening, and she had told me that she was going to be out of town, going to go visit a friend. But you know, who would have ever thought that you'd have picked the same at the, the same state of Oklahoma? Time. You know, go to the same drive-in restaurant at the very same time. So the surveillance agent that was sitting with me, he always had a surveillance agent. He was down three or four um, spots, and he saw her drive in and uh, looked at her, got her attention, and went like this, put his finger over his mouth like, shh, don't, you know. And so she pulled in and stayed about, you know, eight or ten counts, <laughs> backed up backed up and left, thank goodness. Yeah, thank so, goodness. Yeah, but, you know. You develop a hatred for drugs in a job like this. I did, yes, uh, uh, especially the marijuana because I, I uh, administered that marijuana project for the state uh, for oh gosh, fifteen years, and we really made a dent in it. I mean, we went all over the state and and uh, uh, got officers from from police departments and sheriff's offices and trained them up, and uh, we had quite an effort going in the summer, cutting, slashing, and burning. And getting rid of and making arrests and then for the law to change like it has with regards to um, medical marijuana I had no idea we had so many sick people in Oklahoma <laughs> uh, 
you can go to any one of those hundreds of dispensaries and just sit there and people just in and out of that door, you know, uh, allegedly seeking drugs for medication, which is, you know, you know, and I know that that's not right. But, um, you know, and then the, the, the uh, bond issue that has come up, you know, no bond and and then uh, defund police and so on. So it's just been kind of a disappointing last several years to the point to where really. Truthfully, so do you think that marijuana should not have been outlawed? I mean, made legal because it's it was been made legal in a lot of states, even if it's not just for medical for, you know, purposes. Well, they, they approach it with medically. And then, of course, then they. Uh, switched over to try to, to make it to a recreational. So it's just a stepping stone. And I think you just have to stop it and say, no, it's just not legal. DEA, it's a Schedule One drug. And a Schedule One drug, by definition, is a drug that has high medical abuse and no, no medical acceptance. There's, it's not used for anything right now. And uh, so the DEA has still got it as a Schedule One drug. It's illegal. But yet the states have voted to allow it medically. So it's a real cloudy issue. You know, on one hand, it's federally against the law, but the other, the state will allow it. So how do you operate under those rules? It's difficult. Very. What's, what's wrong with the drug, in your opinion? In what? What's wrong with marijuana? What is it? Is well, it a, a stepping stone drug? Is yeah, it, it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. But yeah. why? Yeah. Why can't alcohol be looked at as the same thing? Well, what, what is the difference? Why? Why do people always say, "Oh, well, you drink; it's just as bad as marijuana." At one time, alcohol was illegal. Yeah, you can't. You got to be twenty-one to have a legal drink in America. Right. What's the? What's wrong? I've never smoked marijuana. I've never. I've never needed it. I, I've. I've never been a you know been that guy that needed an edible. I've never had had done any of that. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of people out there that say things like, "It's way better for you than alcohol is." It's mm, no. there's no hangover with it. There's and I'm like, no man, I think it kills your brain cells quite sure a does. bit. Yeah. But I you you develop a hatred for it. But is it worse than alcohol? And should alcohol be illegal if marijuana should be illegal? Well, alcohol is alcohol, and, and marijuana is a drug. And there's two distinctions: a drug and an alcohol. Uh, of course, you know, they legalized alcohol years and years ago, and that's what they're in the process of doing with this drug. So, no, I don't think it should be allowed. I think they should they should they should stop it and it, and not not let it go any further. Um, um, it like I say, it's a gateway drug. It leads to others. I, I remember one time I was doing a, a, a paper for my master's degree and I was thinking, what in the world can I write on? And. We had a procedure at the bureau that when you arrested somebody, you brought them in and get, did a history sheets and a rights waiver and gave them the opportunity to talk to you if they wanted to. For example, if you were, if I arrested you and I said, okay, I'm going to put you in jail tonight, uh, but you know what I want you to think about is uh, uh, if you want to cooperate here and try to do something, maybe we can strike a deal. Well, about 80 or 90% of them will take that deal, and that's how you build your informant base. And uh, so uh, on this particular case, I, I remember um, <clears throat> having a, a person that, uh, that uh, had started with marijuana and, and, 
and on this rights waiver sheet that I looked at, you know, had gone right on up and, and told me during the interview when I was interviewing him and, and doing this rights waiver, um, he said, you know, I, I start with marijuana. And he said it was just so exciting and so exhilarating that it just I just went on. And he said, I'm a hardcore uh, cocaine and, and or a meth user now. We had a real, real bad meth problem in Oklahoma. And so I thought, well, that might be interesting to write a paper on that. So I took a hundred of those rights waivers and and uh, uh, sheets and separated them. And 96 of them listed on there, because you asked that question, what drugs do you do? What did you start with? They all started with marijuana. So I wrote my paper on and correlated, you know, marijuana versus other and harder illegal drugs. And they were, you know, uh, they all started with token marijuana so you have a master's degree too i do holy shit you've done it all i've got a master's degree in criminal justice administration wow good for you yeah and your thesis was on marijuana as Mm -hmm. a gateway drug to wow yeah (laughs) did you ever run into a dealer that you were buying from ask you to participate to check the quality or hey you got to try some of this coke or put your finger out or or you walk in and they got a piece of glass like the movies with a razor blade and they're cutting it up right there yes. did you ever encounter that where they yes. they insisted on you trying the product sure did you have to do it as an undercover agent even though you hated drugs and or did you get clever again and find a way out i found a way oh. out you have to uh you can't enforce the law if you're breaking it and um uh, I remember once was a... Uh, oh, so you can't go undercovers deep enough because then they can come back and say, wait, you snorted cocaine with me? That's true. Oh, really? So you can never go and test the product to get even deeper undercover, to no. get, gain more credibility and trust with the guy? No. You, if you put yourself in as a user, then they're going to give you the opportunity to use. If you put yourself in as a, you know, somebody that's kind of a middleman or, or going to move the product or so on and so forth and stick with that, then you're a lot better off. You can say, no, I don't do the drug. I just sell it or I move it or I've got friends that, you know. So don't put yourself in a position where you give them the opportunity to say, well, you do it, so let's fire one up or snort a line. Wow. Like you, so you have to good. guide your conversations pretty closely. So, yeah, that's where your education and your sure. people skills and, your and, training, yeah. and, and all that comes in. So yeah. what were the percentages of your dealers, male to female? Was there ever a female that you bought from? Oh, gosh, yes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, I would say 70, 30 men. But there are there were female mm-hmm. dealers. And sure. these female dealers, are they, are, are they targeting a certain demographic of a customer base? Are they put in that position? Or how, where, where, are they all working for a bigger, bigger drug lord? Yeah, the, the, the money. You've got to you know, follow the money. I mean, that's the, they, the girls will be working for somebody. You know, very few of them have their own lab if it's meth, you know, or cocaine conspiracy or whatever. Uh, they'll they'll be moving the drug. They won't be, you know, manufacturing it. We Did had you? a real real problem in the late uh, or nineties through the early two thousands of methamphetamine. I mean, we we were we were having oh, I remember five hundred labs a year. Wow, that we were going into, and our guys <clears throat> and girls agents were. Uh, we didn't, you know, it was several years before we uh, observed any kind of safety regulations. You know, those 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 chemicals are carcinogenic; they'll kill you. And we'd go right in there and breathing. I can remember standing on the outside of a house and getting ready to go in and bust a lab, 
and you say, okay, are y'all ready to go? One, two, three. And on the last, last three, you'd go, <gasps> draw a breath and run in and yell, scream, get down, state police, whatever. And then get back to the door <gasps> and get another breath and go back in. Really? Yeah. So eventually they put us or sent us to a, a SBE, South Breathing Apparatus School. And, uh, of course, that didn't work very well because everybody, all the guys had beards, you know, and you had a lot of leaks in your mask. But uh, it helped a little bit. And uh, there was some things. You had to eventually you had to go through that school, 40-hour school, and finish it up before you could go into a lab. They did finally. We finally enacted that procedure and policy. It seems to me with the drug game that, and I'm just going off of, like, well, let's, you know, there's a show on A&E called The First 48. <clears throat> I watch it like it's going out of style. I love it. I think it's the best TV made because it's so real. Um, they can't fake that shit. <laughs> you just can't fake it. There's no like, hey, stand over here and do a cutaway. I mean, no, uh-huh. this is real. This is real. And it's it's, it's, real time. it's yeah. very well done. But a lot of it's coming out of Tulsa, just right down the street from where we sit right now. It is. A couple hours away in uh-huh. eastern Oklahoma. Um it seems to me like, I mean, I'd have to go back and see this. I think 90% of the freaking homicides are because of drugs. Almost every case you watch on that show is because of a drug deal gone bad or a drug, a guy owes this guy money or he was caught, you know, stealing or he was caught selling on the wrong corner or, you know, sure. it, it's something to do with collected money because of drugs or, or part of the drug game, it seems to me. You're right. Did, is that what you experienced in your oh, career? Yeah, in, yeah. In, in, and there was a longtime DA in Oklahoma County named Bob uh, Macy, and uh, he was a, a, a really good guy. And, and I remember him talking to him, giving several classes and so on. And I remember him saying one time that 95% of the cases that they file in Oklahoma County, which is a large county, 95% of those cases are drug-oriented cases. Just like you said, you know, it might be a house burglary, but why? Well, they needed money for drugs. It might be a concealing stolen property, but they had the property and stuff because they needed money for drugs. You know, so all that drug industry drove all, all the, the other crime. crime. Yes. And it continues to do yes, that. Yes, it continues today. What can you do about it? I don't know. You know, certainly not legalize marijuana as a as a medicinal product and i'm not saying there's not you know there's 435 chemicals that are un uh, identified in a marijuana a plant you know i studied it for a long time i know what you know i know what the and and, and there 435 that are unidentified yeah 435 chemicals in a marijuana in in a, in a marijuana plant and you know, they study those things, and there may be something, you know, it may be real good for uh, glaucoma, for cancer, or for something, you know. But if it is, let's put it through DEA and our uh, uh, drug enforcement, uh, drug uh, tests, and, and, and make it legal and do it right. You know, I'm not saying that there's nothing. I mean, that there's, you know, it's, it's a horrible, horrible drug. It may, there may be some properties in it that are good, but this making it legal for edibles and grow your own plants in your house and so on and so forth is, is not the answer. Not the answer. No. One of the, th- I don't know if it's funny, but with COVID, um, all of these um, dispensaries, they call them in where we live in Nevada, it's legal. So every billboard now is get an eighth of weed for 25 bucks or $40 weed. I mean, there are billboards everywhere. Just really? shows the marijuana, <laughs> best weed in Reno kind of shit. Right. Um, well, during COVID, 
there was no transactions allowed within these stores. They had to be all parking lot transactions. So follow me here for a second, Russ. <clears throat> you go from having illegal drugs in the world where a lot of these drug deals are a window rolls down mm-hmm. and they put this bag across and you collect the money and you go, it's in a dark parking lot. I drove by these dispensaries and there was a person in a mask walking a drug out a window being rolled down, Mercy. put it into the car. So it was like, what? Is, like it was yeah. COVID caused it to go back to a parking lot drug deal. Yeah. And then the money exchange, you know, the credit card would come out and they'd swipe it in their little iPad or whatever. But yeah. I just started thinking to myself, like how, like how unbelievable is that, that it went full circle, that an illegal drug deal now is an illegal, but they're doing it the exact same way yeah, through the car window. And, it, it, yeah, yeah. It was just crazy to me to see it. But yeah, I, I think that, the big, the big, the bigger picture thing is what does it lead to? Mm-hmm. You could have somebody that smokes marijuana and they're a very peaceful person, sure. and, and they might be very productive. And I've always had a mindset of like marijuana causes uh, lethargicness or laziness. I've I've always thought that myself. I don't know if it does or not a hundred percent, but in my opinion, I've always looked at it as that kind of drug that it's just kind of like a a drug that puts you on that level of not being very productive. But again, mm-hmm. there's a ton of cases out there that prove that wrong. I'm sure. Right. But it just seems like drugs build into a lot bigger things. Well, and, that, and marijuana is very spatial, too, you know, meaning that uh, I remember a, a, a test that we did or that we had uh, the availability to get was um, they had a, a airplane pilots and uh, they divided the room and they gave one group of six or eight pilots, you know, a placenta, uh, fake marijuana. And then the others had the drug, and then they put them in that that aircraft, you know, on the ground. I don't know what you call it, like a trainer simulator. Yeah, simulator. And uh, uh, nine out of the nine, you know, some of them ran into the the hangars. Some are way left of the landing zone. You know, it sets so the spatial and the time and you know, motion and everything was directly affected. And I remember that study, and that was early, early on, and that always stuck with me. You know about people that you know that that would use that drug and slow down you know just like, like, like that's this, right you know, that's you know. right but i guess there's like different strains yeah. now to where yeah. you yeah. some of it affects you in different ways mm-hmm. and some of it even like gives you energy i hear now so yeah. i don't know a whole lot about it i think that it's very it's very interesting to me of the war on drugs and you know you go back to reagan's years in the early 80s and his wife nancy and 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 the war on drugs and that now here we are in 2020 and the drugs are being i'm wondering if there's a study or the statistics of what is going on in the the drug trade now is the the legalization of marijuana cut down on the illegal drugs being sold on the streets and specifically marijuana or is there still uh a lot of that going on. Do people still go and buy it from a dealer when they can go into a store and get it? Well, I know that I was talking to some of the guys over at the bureau, and they were talking just about that. And they said, uh, you know, that uh, the black market on marijuana is 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 more than what it's ever been at this time. Uh, that uh, they were buying land in the western part of Oklahoma for cash. Bolivians, Russians, Chinese are buying land and then putting grows up, and they don't have enough people to go out and inspect those grows and so uh they said that if they could get that marijuana up and grow it cultivate it and uh it cost them about four hundred dollars to do that and then get it up to transport up to boston new york uh connecticut somewhere up in the eastern part on the on the border that you'd make four thousand dollars so that's 
incentive enough for these people to try to continue to do that, though it's legal medically. Uh, they're growing it illegally, you know, and, and, and producing it. And, and uh, the black market on marijuana in Oklahoma right now is at an all-time high. Wow. Even with it being available mm-hmm. legally. Yeah. So I guess there has been studies done. So where does it go for you from here? Do you go back and consult at all? You've been retired for ten, five, ten years or mm-hmm. something now. Do yeah. you do you consult? Do the do they still call on you? Do you write doctrines for it? Do you go speak on it? No. Well, how did the retirement go? Um, um, painfully. I mean, you know, you miss it every day. Uh, do I really want to be back? No, not really. Um, at one point in time, uh, I was sent to uh, polygraph school out in San Diego, and. Uh, I got my polygraph license in, in probably 30 years ago, and I've continued to give polygraphs. And so the Bureau has called me. In fact, they've called me. They're going to hire 50 new agents to just do what we were talking about, and that is go out and inspect these illegal and illicit crows. And so they were needing a pre-employment polygraph. So I've been connected or contacted to run all those polygraphs. A pre-employment polygraph. So I keep my hand in the game a little bit. I know all those, all the agents over there, though, though the longer you're gone, the longer you're retired, you know, the further you get from the flagpole, it's a little bit more difficult to, you know, keep those relations going. But I still, you know, can go back over and feel at home. Do you, do you still think back on the career? And obviously it's been a very storied career. Any regrets, any changes to the professional career? Do you wish you would have went into another line of work at all? Did it ever cross your mind that you wish you would have been doing something else besides being the head of narcotics for 30 years in Oklahoma? No, not really. Um, I mean, uh, I found my passion, and it took me a little while to do it. Uh, You know, I taught and coached for uh, six or seven years, and then I went into sales for a year or two, and then then, uh, got into police work. And... um, that was where I was most happy. And, you know, the old saying, if you find something you like to do, then you, you really don't feel like you worked a day in your life. And I really do feel that way. Uh, I was teasing a little while ago when I said I stayed 30 years to see if I liked it. I really did like it. It was a good profession for me. I was good at it. And uh, the secret is to, to be able to nurture, develop, and find good informants because they know what's going on. Yeah. You know, the agents don't. You know, but if you find a good informant and, and you gain his trust the best you can, um, you can make some hellacious cases. And I was able to do that. Good for you. Do you have any pictures laying around that you could show me of some of your disguises? Mm-hmm. I think I do. I think we're going to use one for this. Well, I don't know if that'd be smart to put them out there. I don't know what you can can and can't do. Like, well, I don't know if you got to st- stay in kind of incognito still, so nobody ever knows that you, you know, know we were one. so. It was such a uh, clandestine and secretive um, uh, job that um, I remember um, I'd been there about maybe a year, and uh, we had a couple of guys that uh, were state troopers, and they wanted to come over and work, and so they let them come over and um, go to workforce for a two-year period. Well, they finished their tour up, and we were working a pretty significant cocaine conspiracy. And um, when they left, I took over uh, that case. And um, I was driving along one day, and and the trooper was in behind me and pulled me over, and we sat inside the road and talked for a little while. 
And uh, the next morning I went to work and my boss said, uh, the director wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. Well, I went down there and he said, uh, so what are you running your head about the investigation on so-and-so about? I said, I don't know. I, what are you talking about? And he said, well, this particular trooper called somebody and told them that, you know, we're, we're talking on the side of the road. And I said, yeah, I saw him last night. And we did talk. And he said, don't you, on the way up the hall here to see me, did you not see those signs that said loose lips sink ships, security first and all that stuff? And I said, sure. And he said, uh, did that just kind of roll off the back of you or what? And I said, no. He said, well, we don't talk like that out of school. And he said, you've compromised this investigation horribly. He says, you go get that paper box down there by your desk and pack your stuff and get your ass out of here. Fired me. Really? Yes, sir. And I went, oh, my Lord. I mean, I walked down that hall. I was, my legs, I could barely walk. I was just, oh, my gosh. This is the job I wanted. Here I am. I've made this terrible mistake. What am I ever going to do? I went down there and packed my stuff up and walked back up the hall. And he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to put this stuff in my car and get out of here. And he said, you come in here a minute. And he braced me right there. And he said, uh, you realize you made a terrible mistake? And I said, I sure do. And he said, uh, we don't know what the damage is on that investigation. We might be able to repair it. But he said, don't you ever talk about a case again out of school. I said, yes, sir. He said, put your stuff back and go back to work. So from that point, which was about my first year or so, uh, you talk about clandestine and secretive. <laughs> I never even told my wife what I was doing. Wow. Never. So she just happened to see you at the Sonic that yeah. day and thought, and then went, oh, shit, mm -hmm. he's working. Yeah. Wow. My kids would ask me questions. They were pretty good about it. They knew, you know, I wouldn't say anything. We'll come back with part three. My man, Russ, what a freaking badass dude. We're going to hunt together tomorrow. Snows, lessers, honkers, and mallards. It's going to be 10 degrees in the morning. It's turning on here. It's a Foul Life podcast. Check out this song. Todd Thompson and 2AM Logic. My Foul Life. Thank you, Russ. Let's go get this Canada Goose spaghetti ready. You want to do it? Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, buddy. Bye.